Wow. Dialed in, dial me up, dial me back out. <laughs> We're in. <laughs> Unplug me. Don't call me back. Wow. Stuff is, you look good. Thanks, man. You look uh, good, no, man. Are you working thanks. out? Uh, no, not at all. Zero working out. <laughs> this week's a very juicy week. It's a juicy week, yeah. So <laughs> uh, I, I'll give you, I, I'll tell you something that I, I've been, I've been through the Torah. I mean, I, I became more observant about ten years ago. So I've been through the Torah every year for the last ten years or so, and I've looked at it from so many different points of view. Uh, one through the you know the various teachers that I've had, but also just as I've gotten older and contemplated it more through my own life experience, I've approached it differently. And you know, I'll, I'll mention it many times. I'm sure throughout the many weeks that we do this, uh, but I've started to approach the Torah now through the perspective of a saga, as an epic saga, an epic story. Each part of the Torah, every story of the Torah, sometimes when you read it for the first time, especially if you're not familiar with the language, it can seem just about like a bunch of isolated incidents, like a collection of biographies of like random Mesopotamian guys wandering through the desert. Like first this guy went here, then he went there, then he had a son. Then what does one have to do there? I've, as I've seen the pattern develop, it's this unbelievable saga. It's this unbelievable story with a theme that runs, multiple themes that run through every chapter, every person's life, every story, and the entire, the entire thing has its own set of themes. And uncovering them, developing them is unbelievable. I mean, it's like, it's like the greatest story ever told, you know, it's like the greatest book ever written. And people used to say that. And I was like, yeah, the Torah is really cool. It has all this amazing life wisdom. And there's some unbelievable, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, literary anomalies that are just like mind blowing. Uh, we can talk about that another time. But now I'm just seeing this is like the story of all stories. This is the epic of all epics. This is the Iliad times 10. You know, it's so it. it and I can't take credit for this point of view. I, uh, there's a rabbi in uh, the five towns in, in, uh, in New York, in Long Island. His name is Rabbi Foreman. And he's the one who opened my eyes to this point of view. Uh, he's blowing my mind with this point of view. Uh, he has a website called Aleph Beta. Like, you know, like, he's like very clever, Aleph Beta. And, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in, in exploring the Torah from this point of view. But anyway. We'll put it in the show notes as the podcast Yeah, put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay, no problem. So, okay, as a quick summary of just the events of the last three Parshas, uh, I'll try not to go off too far, just to give you the broad strokes. Yeah, give us so, like 10, 10 uh, 30 seconds on each. Just right. like elevator pitch. In small news, God created the world, okay? That's the first thing that happened. Entire universe from scratch uh he created the universe he created it uh for man right he created it in six days created man on the sixth day then he rested um he placed man uh which is adam 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 literally means man it doesn't sound like his name i mean it is his name but it means man humanity um it's called it's what god called the first 
human being was Adam. Right, which is also the same word for humanity, right? If you're going to write a, if you're going to write a, you know, a anthropology, you know, book in Hebrew, you would use the word Adam. That's what refers. That's the word for humanity as well. So on day six, God created humanity. Adam, right? A humanity created humanity. Happened to be one guy, but what that, that that that's also you know there are some who say he created all of humanity and there also was one guy but there was many people created but at least he started with one that's that's like the that's like the most uh majority popular opinion he created one man one woman placed them in the garden he gave them two commands number one you should eat from all the trees of the garden that i give you and number two you should not eat from one particular tree Right, so he gave him a command to eat and a command not to eat. Okay, long story short, uh, the woman Eve was tempted uh, to eat by a snake or by some kind of creature uh, who happened to speak and walk. Um, that's a whole subject matter in itself. Uh, and she gave to her husband to eat. They both ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. They were banished from the garden. Um, then that's 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 saga one. Then and I love I love to jump in real quick just to saga one because I've been yeah. thinking about this for a second. Going off is gonna be about going off a little bit as we right. go through these topics. Like we love each other, we've loved each other for decades. I'm assuming there's gonna be times when we agree, when we disagree, when we fight, when like we're gonna right. probably see a lot of a lot. so going off is gonna be very thematic. My only thoughts here that I think is interesting is that if like it it, sh it talks it, it sh it illustrates a lot about the perspective of the writer that the woman is the one who does the bad thing, which I think is interesting. Um, it is. Right? I don't have much to say about that. I know that there are commentaries that speak about why it was specifically her who was the one that was tempted. You have to understand, too, because at this stage of the Torah, Adam and Eve are not your average people. They're not like people like us. I mean, there are, you know, there are sources that speak about them as, you know, like, like Adam, for example, was like a hundred feet tall. He could see from one end of the earth to the other. These were spirit. Their skin was made of light. These are some of the kind of like allegorical. I mean, these were, oh, wow. these were not, these were not human beings the way we, the way we normally think about them. So it's it's going to be hard to kind of put Adam into the man box and Eve into the woman box and kind of like use our our preconceived understanding of the nature of man, the nature of woman to kind of understand that. So so I'm, I'm just pointing that out like as a disclaimer. Um, but I know that there are commentaries that speak about why it was Eve specifically, why she was the one that was tempted by the snake and not Adam. Uh, one simple answer, you don't have to get into the differences between men and women. Very simply, God commanded Adam and then created Eve. So she never heard the command directly from God. Adam heard the command directly from God. So, so it's like there's a, there's a part of us that maybe the man betrayed the woman. Right. In fact, there's a, there's a, either he didn't tell it to her correctly. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a. Uh, some commentaries that say that Adam actually uh, was a little bit too strict with hidden uh, with presenting the command to Eve. The command was don't eat from the tree. When the snake said, "Hey, what you know? What 
what's the deal with the trees? Eve says, God, Eve said that God said, not only should we not eat the trees, but we shouldn't even touch the trees. That this one tree, right? The tree of knowledge. Where'd you get that from? Where did it say in the Torah that you can't touch the tree? It didn't say that anyway. She must have got that from Adam. Right? He's the one who told her the whole thing in the first place. So he blew it. He's like, he was like really concerned. He didn't want to make a mistake. He's like, you know what? Don't even touch it. You know, but God never said that. So again, I think it talks, it shows a lot about the psychology of the writer though. Like, I think there's a lot to be had with whoever was the um, the physical embodiment or vessel, whether it's written by a person that made it all up. If God directly, I, I, actually, I don't know this. Is it that God inspired a human to write the book? Or so that God according, directly to, the wrote Jewish, according to the Jewish tradition, uh, God dictated letter by letter yes. the Torah wow. to Moses who wrote it down. So it literally okay. is the authorship of God. And I would say Moses is the scribe who like physically wrote it. Right. So then if that's the case, it talks, you can almost in like the same way that like a forensic psychologist, you know, can look at the book of like, or look at the writings of a human and like make inferences on their psychology. Right. There's a lot to learn about the inferences of then God's psychology and the way he views the world through what was written. Right. So I would be careful with that only because it's, it's hard to speak about God's psychology of, as all, no, 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 as, as, as understanding the mind of God, that's something that's a little dangerous to get into because we just have no way of knowing God's mind. What we do know is what God wanted to share with us, which is this book. We know that he wanted us to see it this way. What he thought is going to be hard because only, you can only do that for a human because you can relate to human experience, right? If you see the way a, a book is written and you're like, oh, I know what that guy was thinking because I know something about humans, right? I know how humans work. We don't know how God works. Maybe. So it's hard to draw those inferences all the way back up, but we do know what he wanted us to think. Sure. And just, right? okay. he, we know what he wanted us to get out of it. That we can, that we can come to know. And even right. to that point, then if we were to make inferences on the psychology of the creator of the book, we would then assume that God intended us to have the ability to try to make inferences about psychology or what was attempting to being communicated or like the state of mind. Like, I guess these thoughts or inferences that can be made are potentially even intentional. Things 100%. that God would want us to think about the book and what it is indicating. I mean, of course. hundred percent. Right? The, the Torah okay. was written for us to learn from it. And it wasn't just written to learn, you know, a set of laws that you can write, you know, it was meant to learn all kinds of things, moral truths, uh, psychological truths, uh, cosmological truths to some extent, uh, right? The, 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 the creation story has some elements of, uh, <clears throat> of how the universe was created. And there are some scientific truths that are within that. But I will say this before we like try to extract every little thing out of the tour we can, I would just say that it is important to know what the book, what genre the book is in, right? Because it, once you know the genre of the book, you know how to read the book. If you don't know the genre, if you're reading, if you read Shakespeare as a like, as like a history book, you're going to be like, that's not, there was no Juliet and Romeo. That never happened. Well, it's not meant to be a history book. It's meant to be a, a book, a, a play on, you know, human 
human the human condition, right? That's what it's meant. So it's not meant to be a history. So you have to know what the Torah is. Is it a history book? Is it a science book? Is it a law book? It's really none of those things. The genre of the Torah is a guidebook. Okay, it's a guidebook for how to live your life, uh, conduct yourself morally, and I would say more specifically for this particular group of people called the Jewish people, right? I mean, the majority of the book is about the laws or the the, the ways of life that that a, a, a Jewish person should live. But really, it has it's it's universal as well, right? In other words, the majority of the book happens to focus on this particular group of people and their relationship with God and how they should be acting and how they should conduct themselves because so many of the laws pertain to the Jewish people specifically, but it has laws and, and weight and, and codes of conduct and, you know, uh, universal truths that, that apply to everyone. Um, but that's what it is. It's a guidebook. So looking at it from that perspective, we have to see like, whenever you're looking at a vignette in the Torah, you have to ask yourself first and foremost, what am I meant to learn from this for my own life? How is mm. this supposed to guide me to live the life that I'm meant I'm supposed to be living? Is there a moral imperative or or advice uh, presented here? Mm. Um, right? I mean, you know, there's a famous question in the Torah. There's a very famous question from uh, one of the medieval commentators who asks, um, and, and this comes, he answers it a little differently, but the, the first question he asks is when the, when the Torah begins with God created the world, uh, his name is Rashi, right? <clears throat> Rashi was a medieval commentator from France. Um, it, it's, it's uh, Rabbi Yitzlomo ben Yitzchak, Yitzchak was his father. Um, what, he, what he asks is why is the Torah starting with the creation of the world? That's not a law. That's not a law. The first law is you should, the first law comes a whole book later. You should be keeping, uh, you know, you should be keeping the, the cycles of the month, right? You should be counting the cycles of the month. That's the first law in the Torah. It's like a book later comes in. in, in and when you in say book, Exodus. you mean Parsha? No, no, an entire book, Exodus. It's not in Genesis. The How first, many books are there in the Torah? There are five books. The second book okay. is Exodus. The first book's Genesis. The first law in the Torah is is in book two is in book two so rashi's very bothered he says why if this is a law book where's the why does it start with the laws right why is this, who cares about it's the really a self-help book right kind of right so so that's not how rashi answers but there are other commentators who speak about why is there even this whole first book what's the point of the first book but what do I need to talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the creation? What are all these? So there's there, you know, uh, there's a particular commentator, a Hasidish commentator, the Nasiv Shalom. Uh, he says that you're supposed to gain the what, what's called the Derek Eretz or the the there are moral there there are moral truths and ways of you know codes like like ways of conducting yourself that you can learn from their life stories, right? Mm. There's certain basic more moral truths that precede the laws on how to mm -hmm. act as a human being, how to be a decent person. Um, and we learn that through their life stories. So mm -hmm. the reason I'm bringing that up is I'm showing you that the life stories throughout all these parts that we're going to explore over the next few weeks, they're not just biographies. They're part of a saga. And mm -hmm. the overarching theme of the entire saga, the, 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 the 30,000 foot view that you always have to have in your mind 
is that this saga is teaching you about how to live your life. It's the that. ultimate self-help book. It's the ultimate self-help's a little funny because usually self-help, you think of self-help as improving your own personal position. There is a there's not necessarily a moral component to self-help, right? This is how you should conduct yourself morally, ethically. So it's a bit different, but yeah, it's how to live your life. And we're going to learn that not just through a book of laws, but also through through looking at other people's lives and seeing their failures and seeing their successes and seeing, you know, different events of their life that can teach us. I want to jump to the second part, Shah, but also before we do, right. what does Derek Eretz mean? Oh, literally. So Derek Eretz means the way of the land. So a good example of Derek Eretz uh, from, you know, it's either this week's Parsha or last week's Parsha, where Abraham was journeying. We'll, we'll get to this in a bit, but Abraham journeyed from place to place. And when he came back, he stayed in the same hotels that he stayed in originally to patronize the same hotels, right? To give the people business. To, he, he had a relationship with them. He wanted to provide them business. We learned from Wait, that Derek, this is Abraham. He stayed in hotels? He, well, yeah, stay somewhere, right? I, I'm not saying it was like the, you know, the, the, the Hilton. It was a, a <laughs> desert hotel, you know, ancient Mesopotamian like desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. He stayed, wherever he stayed, some kind of inn, you know, but he went to the same ones. Um, that teaches us Derek Eretz. This is a way of the world. This is a proper thing to do. It's a proper conduct. It's not a law. It's not a commandment. It's proper to to do this. Um, a lot of a lot of these kind of uh, intuitive moral guideposts. A, a lot of them are rooted in the value of gratitude, right? A lot of them are rooted in gratitude. Some of them are rooted in human dignity, right? How you know, for example, a lot of Derek Eretz is speaking respectfully, using words properly, you know, not using vulgarity. Uh, this would all be part of Derek Eretz, you know, uh, being dignified, dressing, uh, you know, in with clothing that's clean or that's, uh, <clears throat> you know, presentable. Um, sure. You know, some of these things might have legal implications, you know, in Jewish law, but some of them are just ways of the world. Just, you know, and, and, and it varies by culture, right? What might be appropriate to wear in Saudi Arabia may not be appropriate to wear in San Francisco, right? You you have to conduct yourself to some extent according to the times and according to the place that you're in, yeah, right? The Derek Eretz, the way of the, the land. The way of the land. Uh, there are some, obviously there are some objective uh, standards that apply at any time, but, but you know, these types of Derek Eretz, uh, you know, activities can be, I wouldn't say subjective, but they're dependent on, Time and place. Sure, I love it. Well, so that's Derek this is why I love what we're doing. This is what we're. This is going off. This is, this going, is going off. off. Right. This is going off. By the way, D Derek Eretz is not like this kind of like, uh, you know, good advice on a fortune. You know, something that you just like. You know, you, you tell your kids oh, use use yeah. your fork and knife, and you know, put a napkin on. You know, it's you not just like the hotels on the way there. Right. The way it's not just like this general advice. Uh, on how to have good manners or something like that. I'll, I'll, it's, it's, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'll, I want to, I don't want to undermine its importance, 
it's of paramount importance. The, the, there's a there's a in the Talmud, oh, I see. which we can speak about. That is that's another topic for going off. In the Talmud, it says, "Derech uh, Eretz Kadma LaTorah." The Derech Eretz comes before Torah, meaning if you want to learn the the technical laws and and rules of that are presented in the Torah or in the Jewish tradition, in order to even begin approaching the, that subject, you have to have Derech Eretz. You can't learn Torah without Derech Eretz. It's a prerequisite. You have to be a person who has already a sense of dignity, gratitude, uh, other kind of it, it, other kind of universal moral values that you know should that should be part of your personality, right? Without that, if you're a vulgar, you know, brute who is ingratiate, you know, ingrate, ungrateful, and uh, you know, I don't know, just uh, you know, not kind of, not kind of pleasant, not kind of going along with the, 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 the parameters of decent society, you're not fit to be kind of studying the, 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 the depths of the laws and the intri- you're, not, you're not really fit for that. Um, so that's, that's why this is of paramount importance is that this, this whole book of Genesis one of the major themes is Derek Eretz. You're learning not laws, but ways of life, mm-hmm. ways of mm-hmm. acting, ways of conducting yourself, <clears throat> you know, uh, being honest, uh, you know, all these, all these basic values that, you, that are universal, sure. right? You learn a lot of these things from the stories of, their, of these people, of Genesis, these people's lives. Book one, so it makes sense that it's like everyone can relate to it, right? Everyone was, you know, the second story, which uh, getting back to the sure, uh, after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, the second story is the story of Cain and Abel, right? Wow, that's the second story. Cain Cain and Abel both offer their offerings to God. They have obviously know who God is, they're the second people ever created, so they're pretty close to God. They make offerings to God. Um, Cain gives an offering that's less than, uh, you know, uh, top quality. Abel's offering is fine. God accepts Abel's offering. He doesn't accept Cain's offering. Okay. Cain's very upset about this. And God comes to Cain and says, you know, come on, you can try again. You know, I, 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 you know, don't give up. I'm, I'm here for you. I'm willing to accept, uh, the offering. If you're going to put, you know, kind of put it all, put your best forward, but, uh, you know, don't blow it. Uh, mm. Long story short, he meets up with Abel in the field and he beats him to death. Okay, beats him to death. Uh, I mean, that is the classic story of, of jealousy, right? Of jealousy. Why did he beat his brother? What does his brother have to do with it? He should be angry at God, right? God didn't take the offering. What's, what's his brother? Because no, God took his brother's offering. This is the most fundamental you know, story of humanity. I mean, jealousy has has been a feature of human c- civilization between individuals, between uh, communities, between nations, you know, between empires. Jealousy has led to immense destruction in our in our humanity. And if we understood the story of Cain and Abel and the lessons we're supposed to learn from that, in fact, there's an amazing there's an amazing thing that I heard once. Uh, from one of my rebbies that um, 
when Cain kills Abel, right? And he in the in the earth swallows the body. <clears throat> um, God comes to Cain and says, you know, where's your brother? Like, obviously, God knows where his brother is. He kind of wanted Cain to admit what he did and, you know, come to terms with what he did. And you know what Cain answers? It's an amazing thing. Cain answers, I don't know where he is. What am I, my brother's keeper? Am I, like, uh, responsible for him? So my Rebbe told me that there's an opinion that the rest of the Torah, the entirety of the Torah from that point forward is basically answering that question and saying, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your brother. Meaning we are Meaning, all responsible for each other. Correct. You do not live on an island. You are responsible for what you do to your fellow man in every way. You cannot avoid that. We live in a, we are social creatures. We live in, you, you know, even if you go into the mountains and avoid humanity, you are affecting your brothers and you are responsible for them. Either in your presence, your absence, your action or your inaction. Correct. You cannot avoid that responsibility as much as you might want to. You can't lock the door and, you know, go onto your computer or your phone and say, I don't really care about anyone else. You're, you're responsible for that behavior. Right. You ever heard like a victimless crime? A victimless crime or, or you know, some kind of a, a victimless sin, let's say. A victimless sin, right? Uh, you know, let's say you, I don't know, let's say you do something privately in your own house, in your own room that's illegal or immoral, but like no one knows about it. No one got hurt. So what should be the problem, right? Why is, is that, is that? No, nothing happened. No one got hurt. I did something that I shouldn't have done, uh, but it didn't affect anyone in any way, right? Judaism doesn't believe in that. That's not a thing. Everything you do affects the world around you. In, and you don't have to go very far. It's not, it's not, that's not like esoteric. That's not like, it, it literally does. It either affects you and your, your personality and your, uh, <clears throat> You know, and then therefore you go out into the world and have you, you impact others on a daily basis, or it, it does affect others because it somehow affected their relationship, or on a spiritual level, you know, you somehow some kind of energy went out. But you don't have to get all hocus pocus on. You could just realize that when you do something that's that's damaging or that's that's sinful or that's that's wrong, that's inappropriate, you're affecting yourself in a negative way, and in turn that will affect others, right? I'll just give you an example. If you sit on your computer all day and look at pornography, which is a big problem today, you say, you say I'm not hurting anyone, I'm not bothering anyone. I, I, I go to work, I come home, I sit in my computer, I look at what I look at, and it's no one's business. Right? I'm not hurting anyone. You don't think that has an effect on you and your brain and your relationships? And you know, if you know, you don't think that affects other people, you're crazy. First of all, there are all kinds of studies. Neuro, you know, neuroscientists study the effects of dopamine in the brain and, and pornography and pornography addiction, how it destroys your dopamine receptors and all kinds of stuff like that. And it leads to depression and it, it can literally change your brain chemistry permanently. But you don't think that affects if you're married, for example, you don't think that affects your relationship with your wife or if you're with your girlfriend or with your children or with your coworkers, you don't think that doing that, you know, so there, there is no such thing as a private crime. 
you are always responsible for others. You always have to be thinking that how do my actions affect others? And and you know, in 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 Judaism, we have kind of three uh three tracks of relationship. There is the relationship with others, there's a relationship with God, and there's a relationship with yourself. And everything you do or don't do affects all three relationships. You can't avoid it. Um, so anyway, I thought that's that's one of the interesting things I always remember about Cain and Abel is that like you can't avoid social responsibility, no matter what. And we're only chapter two in. Not even chapter two. This is chapter. Well, we're partial oh, sorry. one. Partial it is chapter. It's chapter two. It is chapter two. Chapter um, two of Genesis. The chap. Yeah, the chapter system is different than uh, than the Parsha system. The the chapter system was set up uh, to kind of be like these natural, uh, you know, <clears throat> segments. Uh, the person who developed them said, "Okay, this is the end of this particular segment." You know. Abraham finished this section of his life, so we're going to move on to another chapter, and he kind of put a pause there. Um, it was kind of the development of a particular individual who thought that these were good natural pausing points, and and right, as if someone wrote a book and you would put chapters for different segments. The Parsha system is also that, but it the Parsha system has its own intrinsic meaning. Um, on a spiritual level, for sure, you know. For example, each parsha has certain number of uh, verses in it. The number mm. of verses is, is significant. Um, the the parsha has, if you want to get really uh, mystical, each parsha has its own energy, its own uh, kind of timing in the world, right? Like you said, we wanted to kind of figure out how each parsha relates to what's going on in the world. That's a real thing. You can't do that for chapters. You can't say, oh, chapter 32, and that's exactly what's happening now. You would only be able to do that for partials because the partials are part of the original tradition and they have spiritual significance, I would say. I love that. Thank you for going off. That's a little going off. Uh, um, okay, so let's get back into it. So so Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. Cain is exiled. Um, then you have a whole lot of genealogy. Um, Basically, the world starts to deteriorate morally over the course of years, um, and God is on the brink of destroying humanity. He sees that the humanity project was a fail. Um, I mean, we could spend we could spend every single week on this from now on. What was the humanity project? What what are we doing here? Like, why did God create this whole project and man and put us in the you know in the world and like, what are we doing here? That's a whole, obviously that's like the biggest topic you can talk about. Um, but basically God was reconsidering his entire project and destroying man and starting over with kind of a new system. But then Noah, 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 um, says the Torah says it found, he found favor in God's eyes. God saw that he could, he could rebuild the world through Noah. You know, he can he can do this contingency plan for the world through Noah. He doesn't have to destroy the whole world. He can save Noah and do it that way. And that's what he does. The next chapter, that's the end of Parsha Sparachis. That's the end of the first Parsha. And then you go into Parsha Noah, the second Parsha, which is about Noah and the flood, right? 
So Parsha one goes from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel. To Noah, to all the way to Noah. The the last line of the Torah of the of the Parsha is Noah found favor in God's eyes. That's the last line. From the oh. earth being created to Noah. Yes, thousands so, of years. Soup to nuts, Parsha number one goes from the beginning to almost the end. End of what? What do you mean? The the end, end of the, of the world. The Parsha one goes from the beginning of the world to the almost end of it. Right, correct. 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 Wow. That's a really interesting footnote. That's an interesting thing to just, that's a nugget. Right. And there was this whole, uh, you know, like, like plan. There was this whole, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like God set up the world. There was a whole process and, 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 and system in place that was supposed to be the way of the world. And God had to abandon that essentially, right? It's like God made a prototype and then said, nah, this isn't gonna work. And he like threw it away and like started a new model of something that he was working on, right? God's the creator, God's the inventor. God wrote the, wrote the music. He played it, nah, this doesn't sound right. Let's me start with a new song. But then he found one chord or melody in that song. Ah, I can work with this. I can rebuild it from here. I don't have to throw away the whole song, you know? Or God wrote a poem or a lyric. He's like, ah, that one rhyme, I'll take that and I'll build it from there. I don't have to throw, I don't have to and start that's part show one. That's part of show one. And then Noah is the destruction of everything else and the rebuilding of the world through him, right? So, okay. It's incredible. I do. Do we want to go into as much depth for Parsha two and three? No, I'll I'll do much more broad strokes so we can we can just get we can get where we need to get. It's getting late. Uh, I'll do it in two sentences. Uh, cool. Or three. Don't hold me to it. Uh, basically, God says he's going to destroy the world. He tells Noah to build an ark. God destroys the world through a flood. Um, Noah and his family are saved on the ark. Um, they. Eventually, once the flood waters stop, they come out. They are commanded to repopulate the world. And Noah basically can't do it. He's too depressed. He starts drinking. Uh, you know, he, he plants a vineyard, and which means he basically starts drinking wine and getting drunk. And he just can't handle the apocalypse. And uh, so his children are the ones who end up rebuilding the world, not him. Um, and repopulating the world. And again, again, the world descends into moral decay. Um, you know, a couple of things happen. That happens. Then the the world um, tries to create the Tower of Babel, uh, which is basically all of humanity rebelling against God, right? What, what, what were they trying to build? They were trying to build a tower essentially to get to the heavens to cut cut the ties to heaven right they wanted to cut the cord so to speak and detach the world from its spiritual root which is god um so that's what they were trying to build um and that was god kind of destroyed that plan by mixing up the languages 
And then at the very end of Parshish Noah, we are introduced to Abraham, right? There's some genealogy, and then Abraham steps onto the scene. Um, obviously, Abraham is a descendant of Noah, but he's a descendant of Shame. Uh, I don't know how you say it in English, but Shame. Uh, he basically his father took him and his brothers. One of his brothers died on the way, but he started traveling uh, towards Israel. And then they stopped in a place called Haran. And that's where the, that's the end of Parsha too, right? His father takes some of the family. They stop in Haran. He lives out his life. He dies. The father. So the, it's from the beginning of Noah's. The flood, right? Noah's career. <clears throat> ending in Abraham's. Ending in Abraham. Pausing in Haran. Pausing in Haran. Right? On the way to Israel. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's unclear whether the father was on his way to Israel or were just migrating, uh, but it was towards the direction of Israel. Let me say that. Um, okay. And then they stop. The next so part. foreshadow is what that is. Right. A little bit. Right. Right. Because the next, the first words of the next. Uh, Parsha, which is Parsha's Lech Lecha, are Lech Lecha, right? God said to God said to Abraham, Lech Lecha, go, leave, leave Haran, leave it, go. In fact, he says three things. He says, leave your father's house, leave your birthplace, uh, and what's the other thing? Leave your father's house, leave your birthplace, and that's a lot of. Let me let me look it up, Paul. What is it again? Three things. Let's see. Uh, how can I find this? Here it is. Um, from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house. Yeah, right. Your country. So your land, right? Your land, your birthplace, and your father's house, right? He says leave and go, and go to wherever wherever i'm going to show you okay doesn't say where just go get out so there's i mean there's so much to learn from that uh for sure yeah i was going to say there's, there's so much there i want to remind people who are listening again if this is the greatest self-help book of all time that right. is designed to speak directly to you when there are things said to the reader or to characters Right, right. These are, these are messages to the readers. What I should say, if there's messages to the characters, it's messages to the reader. Correct, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, I mean, you know, this is the ultimate beginning of any journey towards meaning. Right. If you want a life of meaning, if you want a life that matters, if you want a life of step outside your comfort zone, get out, go. Leave your birthplace, leave your parents' house, leave your country. It doesn't mean you don't have to physically like pack up and go. I'm saying you got to step out of the mindset that was given to you, that was created for you. You have to destroy your preconceived notions. Now, this this is this rings true in any tradition, any religion, any you know. You want to become, um, you know. I, I used to study Buddhism a lot. I mean, I, like. I would say 90% of my meditations in the beginning were just kind of like 
I mean, obviously there was a lot of just basic breathing practice, but a lot of the contemplative meditations were like breaking down my social conditioning, my upbringing, breaking it down. Why should I act this way? This is what my parents had me do. This is what my teachers told me to say. This is what my, you know, my university uh, encouraged me. Why should I do anything that anyone encouraged me to do? Why should I should think for myself through each of these things and decide whether or not they are worth following the, the ways of these people. My parents are very good people, nothing, nothing against them, but you, you have to always, you have to challenge everything you've ever been given because who says you were born into the exact right way of life with the right people? You know, for sure not. We're all fallible. We all have flaws. Uh, our culture has flaws and our century has flaws and our parents have flaws. If you don't challenge all of it, you'll never grow. You'll never grow. So you have to challenge it. I say this to religious kids because, you know, it's a little bit dicey. You don't want to start telling religious kids, hey, like, don't do what your parents question. say. Right, yeah, question. Yeah. Right. But I always tell them, I say, if you want to be an Orthodox Jew, if you want to be a practicing observant Jew, you got to choose it for yourself. Okay. You may not change a single thing that you do, but in your mind, in your heart, you have to decide, I want to do exactly what I'm doing because it's right, it's good, and it's true. Not because, you know, your mom told you you should or your dad or your rabbi or you got to come to it on your own. You got to, like, I would say the Hebrew phrase, make a Kenyan on it. You have, to, you have to acquire it for yourself. You have to make your Judaism yours. And I would say that for any, anything you're doing in your life, you have to make it Absolutely. yours. You're going to be an Olympic gymnast. You can't do it because your mom is forcing you to go to, you know, gymnastics practice. You got to make it your, you got to want it for yourself. Lech lecha, by the way, that's what the, the part says. Lech means to go in Hebrew. Lecha means to you, to yourself. It means go to yourself. Literally, it means go to yourself. It's and interesting. Parsha three. Parsha the three. beginning. Right. Thus begins like the saga of, Abra of Abraham. Thus begins the saga. Be leave this conversation and be the same person. And I feel like every week <laughs> it's going to be the exact same thing. I'm going to like walk out like a totally different person. The problem is, is we skip three weeks. So there's a lot to, uh, a lot to catch sure. up. Sure. We'll get an uh, extra, or, you know, we also might decide that we need like ca a catch up episode in right. the future for each one. Because I even just to put a, uh, just to uh, add to that. Yeah. The way this started is week one, you were telling me how in the first moment of the Torah, God is sitting above water in blackness. Right. And that is just the craziest idea that that is really where this, that everything springs forth from, you know? So anyways, we're not going to go into it now. I think we'll probably have to go back and break these parshas down. So let's keep okay. going through. No problem. So thus begins the life of Abraham and his career as a prophet, as a, <clears throat> as a spiritual man. Um, the next several parshas are about him and his life and what we can learn from his life. Um, so there's a, Abraham is told to go. He leaves, he starts going. He takes with him, uh, obviously his wife and mm -hmm. his nephew. Uh, his nephew is named Lot, Lot, I guess in mm -hmm. English. Um, he takes his nephew with him. He takes, uh, you know, some people that some, 
people, some of his followers, right? He already had a pretty big mm-hmm. following in Haran. He had a big following. He took all his followers with him. They went, they left. They're going to the land that God will show him, wherever that is. He had total faith that it's going to be good. Um, and anyway, he's on the way. He gets there. It's beautiful. Um, I, I don't want to get. I don't want to get too deep in. Basically, cool. uh, Abraham has a lot of challenges along the way. That um, he, let me sum up the, the theme of 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 this parsha. Parsha three. Abraham is told that he is going to become the progenitor of a great nation. Okay, he is told that he is going to be the guy who is going to, who the whole world will bless through him and will be cursed if they curse him and he will create a great nation um so abraham this entire time is trying to figure out who's going to be who's going to carry forward this great nation i mean i'm like 85 years old i have no children like who's the one who's going to do this like it's great i believe you got 100% just how is this going to work out right so he's thinking at first maybe Lot, my nephew, will be the one. So turns out that Lot is not uh, morally fit to be the next leader. Lot has some some major character flaws. Lot ends up, in this week's Parsha, you'll see, Lot ends up in Sodom, which is one of like, it's basically like going to like, like the red light district of Las Vegas. You know what I mean? It's like, he's like hanging out in the worst parts of town. Uh, you know, so uh, Lot's not really the guy. Um, he's not sure what to do. He, you know, Lot gets captured. He goes and saves Lot. He, a, a couple different things happen throughout. His wife is captured. He has to save her. Um, finally, he's told that he's going to have his own son. He's going to have a son at this old age, right? He's told he's going to have a son. Um, and he, um, he, so, so, you know, basically his, his wife and him are not having children. They tried for 10 years and they have no children still. Now he's like late into his 80s, right? This was when he was 70, 10 years later, he's in his 80s. Um, so what does his wife do? His wife takes the servant, maid servant, and gives her to Abraham as a wife in order that maybe she can, you know, have children and she will, and this child will be the one to carry on the name. He has a child. The child's name is Ishmael, Ishmael. Uh, I don't know how you say it in English. I think it's Ishmael in English. Right? Ishmael. Um, and I was just going to say, one of my favorite books, I'll add in the footnotes of all time, Moby Dick? is Ishmael. <laughs> oh. No, is it a book called Ishmael about a telekinetic gorilla that oh. tells the uh, tells the, the the protagonist of the story through a glass in an apartment the fundamental truth of the world, which is, oh. I'm sure, intentional. Uh, which basically is the law. The law of the world is that when a species eats out the resources underneath it, that species caves in on itself. Which is just a really interesting, yeah. And that's how ecosystems. That's a commentary on uh, on human, human, the human species. Exactly. Um, so anyway, Ishmael is born. He's supposed to be the guy, right? Um, at when he turns thirteen, God says. Uh, you should circumcise yourself to Abraham and your whole family, including uh, including Ishmael and his whole family. So Abraham, at you know the ripe old age of how old is he now? 
is he 87? Yeah, he must be must be 87. No, uh must be uh no. Once Ishmael turns 13, he's 98. He's 98 years old. Uh because he doesn't have the child at 99. So he he circumcises himself at this old age. And uh that's the end of the parsha. Circumcision. Done. 13 year old circumcision. Well, he was 99, 98. His son was 13. But it's hor it's horrible. Yeah, it's hard. It's not good. <laughs> from that's why from then on out you do it as a baby. But they were like, obviously they did it further. By the way, that's why um I think so I think Muslims, I'm not sure if it's all Muslims, but I know there's some tradition that they will circumcise at 13. Because they believe that they are descendants of Ishmael. And he did it at 13, so they do it at 13. But you can you can fact check me on that. There's no determined age, you know, in a brief article that I just saw. No determined age, but anywhere from the seventh day all the way up through puberty, it could happen. So for 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 a Muslim or for for a Jew, Muslim. Oh, for right. Muslim. So, so there you go. Okay. Um. So anyway, uh, and then the circumcision. That's it. That's partial three. Here we are. And here we are this week. The fourth this week partial. opens up with a on the hottest day of the year. Abraham sitting in front of his tent in tremendous pain from his circumcision, right? He just, he's, he's, he, he they didn't have like surgical, he took a knife. He did it to himself. He took a knife. There's no, there's no, there's no anesthetic. There's no, he just took a knife and did it, right? And he's 99 years old, 98 years old. He's not, you know, it's tremendous pain. Third day, the height of his pain. They say the third day is the most painful. The heat of he's in the middle of the Iraq desert. Well, no, I think he's in Israel now. So he's in the middle of the Israeli desert. And it's, you know, what is he doing? What's Abraham doing? Is he resting in the bed in the tent and icing himself? You know, ice, you know, pouring cold water on it? No. He's sitting outside the tent door, hoping, begging for guests to come so he can take care of guests and serve them. He's in pain more so that there is no guests coming by because it's so hot than he is by his own physical pain. It's an amazing thing. The reason that God made it so hot on this day was so that he wouldn't be bothered with guests. He's in tremendous pain. God said, you know what? Abraham, I'll help you out here. I'll make it too hot. No one will bother you. You can just rest. No obligation to take care of other guests. Not for Abraham. He was distraught that he couldn't take care of others. What, and what's the context of him taking care of others? This is one of Abraham's premier qualities. Uh, this is something that we learn from Abraham's life altogether, is that he is the embodiment of kindness, of loving kindness towards others. That is his. That is the overarching theme of his life and his strongest most pronounced quality. That's what he lives for. That's his essence. His essence is giving to others. So when he can't do that, he's he's dead. He's not, he's, you know, it's a tremendous he's pain for him. He's not living his purpose, yeah. He's not living wow. his purpose. And he, you know, someone who's on the spiritual level of Abraham, not living your purpose is much more painful than, you know, little bodily pain. Um, so, that's an amazing thing that we can learn from his life right there. That's your lesson. 
not everyone's going to have that same quality and, and, and natural tendency towards loving kindness, but certainly something to strive for or to admire. You know, I, I have I have met people like this, not on his level, obviously, but I have met people. They just live to give. They live to give. What one of one of Jenna's close friends, who we you know when we were living in Israel, we used to go to their house all the time. She told me that her parents, they live you know in Muncie, New York. They have like a 15 bedroom house that they bought specifically so they could have like 10 extra bedrooms. They have like 10 kids because, you know, but the 10 kids squeeze into five rooms and then they have 10 extra bedrooms so that they can host people who are passing through, uh, people who don't have a place to stay, homeless people, people who, you know, need to just need a place for a short time. I, she, she remember we were asked. She told a funny story. She said one time she was walking to the refrigerator in her own house. She's you know she's a ten year old girl, and someone says, "Oh, where are you from?" What are you? And she's like, "I live here. <laughs> this is my house." It's like they, <laughs> they didn't even know that she was like because so many people pass through this house. That's what they live for. They live for just giving to others. That's it's 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 it's, it's part of them. Wow, very Abrahamic of them. They were Abrahamic. Uh, another friend of mine, his mother would cook like like. Does like like for thirty people each week for the Sabbath for Shabbos, because just either to people that were coming over, people that she'd bring meals to people. She had, she had a cauldron. He said she would make like she would make like rice and like a cauldron so she could like bring it to other people. I oh mean, gosh. people people are like this. Because actually, if you can look this one up, one of the most amazing people of the of the current generation. She she passed away recently. Um, her name is Henny Machlis. Henny Machlis. She had a house in Israel, small house. She used to have about a hundred people at her house every week. There she is. Wow. Just have a bunch of people over for Shabbat. And take I mean, care she, of them. she was like the embodiment of pure kindness. You know, this is just, she, she just lived to serve. She's the Jewish mother, Teresa. Kind of. I, I, yeah, I was, yeah, it's, you know, Different, uh, yeah, very similar in that way. Uh, but I guess to those who know, Mother Teresa was the the Jewish, uh, the the Christian Henny Machlis. Right, <laughs> right, right. Um, so anyway, this is the quality of Abraham. It's something admirable. It's something to strive for and to try to improve in our own lives, whether it's natural, whether it's not natural for us. Um, and 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 it, it, you know, you can. Start, this is where you can get really deep. I don't want to get too. I don't want to go off too far and too deep, but. This, but loving kindness and this the, the the quality of loving kindness at its root is going out of yourself, right? Mm. Starting here and moving beyond the self, right? That is the beginning of any spiritual journey. That's why Abraham is commanded lech lecha. It's it's sorry. It's, it's starting within and going outside of yourself. Correct. That's what loving kindness is, right? If I put my hand out and hand you a dollar I am taking from my own and I'm giving I'm, now now this is something important you know what's popular today uh is self-help and self-love and self-care and self all that stuff it, I'm not knocking any of that stuff um you know I, I just don't think that's the end goal right the purpose of self-love and self-care and self this and that the, this is the way you should give like an like like Abraham. This is the proper way of giving. 
You can't wait till you're perfect, but this is the proper way to give. When you are whole and complete within yourself, when you are connected to the source and you are full, right? There's no lacking within you. The, 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 the metaphor that's used is you overflow, right? My cup runneth over. I overflow. So giving is effortless. It just, it's like an overflowing cup. Like, you know, oh, it, it, it's like, saying. imagine, it imagine can't help but give. Imagine if you had a billion dollars cash, right? You can't invest it. And you're walking, oh, you just give it to everyone. You would, you know, it wouldn't be hard for you. You have a billion sure, dollars. You, you couldn't even give enough away. You couldn't even give enough away. You couldn't even try. Like you would just, it would just feel so easy, so natural. That's the attitude of Abraham with everything. This world meant nothing to him. You know, he didn't get any pleasure from this world. Everything he had was just, I'll give it to everyone. Now, it's interesting, and this is intentional. Abraham was known to be an extremely wealthy man. He acquired extreme wealth. Part of, now, I'm not saying if you give everything away, you're going to become wealthy. But there, there actually is a book about this that I forgot what the book is called, but some, it was, it's not a religious book. It was someone who said, like, by giving more charity, you're going to actually make more money, not just with tax write-offs. Like, somehow money is going to come back to you. We, this is, we do believe that, that there's something to that, that the more you give of yourself, either your time, your energy, your money, whatever it is, it will come back, right? Because the laws of, like, the laws of spirituality if you're doing that, then God will give you more. God says, oh, you're fulfilling the purpose. Well, here, I have, God has an infant, you know, God can do whatever he wants, right? Give, give whatever kind of money or power or influence or ability to everyone, right? So if you're using it to give to others, so God will just give you more so you can give more to others, right? Uh, it makes sense, right? It's like the altruistic. Uh, right. Now I, I, you can't you can't take that to the bank. There's plenty of giving people who are extremely impoverished. I mean, it's not like a, a perfect science in that way, but that is some that is a good guiding principle for your life that you should give, and you shouldn't be afraid to give, right? That you're going to lose out. You're definitely not going to lose out. Whether God returns the favor or whether it benefits you in other ways, you will be bet you will be rewarded, uh, for for doing that. Um, so anyway, that's an amazing thing. Uh, and, and, and really, by the way, I, I, this, is where you can, this is where we can really go off. This process of starting at the whole and complete self and moving beyond is not just a process of how to live a nice life and be a good person and all that. This is the, this is the process for developing anything, any act of creativity begins with that process, right? There is a certain going out when you want to write a song or, a, or paint a painting, or there's a certain, the first step is to go out, to put something on paper, to create a melody, to, you know, to, to, to just go out, go out and do, go out of yourself, take whatever's in there, whatever feeling you're having, whatever, uh, you know, thing that you need to express and Put it out a little bit. Get it out of you, right? You ever had that feeling when you're writing a song? It's like you're like, it has to come out of, it has to like be birthed, it has to come out. 
That's step one. If you don't do that, you can't go anywhere, right? So th there's a there's a there's a th there's a a process here that has that has applications uh, beyond sure. just kind of just like moral you know uh, moral living. There's applications mm -hmm. to you know solving a math problem. There's applications to any every area of your life that this can be relevant to. But you have to kind of get the whole structure down. That's it's a deep subject and involves a lot of Kabbalah. Getting the structure clear and how it applies in different aspects of uh, mm -hmm. of life, but certainly the, the 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 primary purpose of this is to learn about actually being a giver, and mm -hmm. you know thinking about why that's so important to be a giver. That's a whole subject matter in of itself. Why it's so important to be a giver. But anyway, I, the reason I'm speaking about this because this is this week's parsha. This is the opening of the parsha. I He's sitting languishing in the heat. Well, he chopped it off. Right. His loving kindness is on full display. The Torah is putting it out there for everyone to see. He all on, on front, in, in spite of his deep pain, he's sitting out waiting in to the heat. The in the heat. There's no umbrella. Yeah. He's sitting out in the front of his tent, looking out to see if anyone's there that he can, like, serve. Okay. It's unbelievable. So what does God do? God sends him three people. He's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to torture you. So there, you know, what these people are, uh, are they real people? Are they angels uh, that are in human form? You know, that that's, that's a, that's a, that's a big subject, but basically God sends him some guests. What does Abraham do? Runs. The Torah says he runs. Imagine it's a 98 year old man who just, you know, snipped and he's running towards his guests in the middle of the desert. Uh, it's more, you know, it's more dramatic. He runs to them. Please come in, wash your feet, sit here. I'll cook you up my choicest meat. He gets to, he tells Sarah, Sarah, go quickly, prepare the meat. Yishmael, quickly, you know, slaughter the slaughter the best calf we have and make it in per, you know, and he, they they prepare them the perfect meal. He doesn't give them the leftovers. He cuts up his finest meat, fresh, serves these guys. Basically, they tell him, God said, you're going to have a child in, a, in one year. Okay? One year's time, you're going to have a child. So uh, Sarah overhears this. She laughs because she's like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm in my 90s. My husband's in his 90s. Like, this isn't going to happen. So, she, you know, she was criticized for that because there was a little bit of doubt on her end um, that she was kind of laughing at this a little bit. I mean, you know. It wasn't like she was like shy to miracles. She was, you know, she was Abraham's wife. She was a prophetess in her own right. In fact, the Talmud speaks about she was a greater prophet than Abraham in certain respects. So this wasn't like, you know, it's it's unusual that she had this lack of faith, but she did whatever. Um, okay. Uh, what happens next? Um, they're told that. Okay. Next. They also tell Abraham, by the way, well, they don't tell Abraham, God tells Abraham, but these angels are going to be, uh, you know, a part of this, a part of this process. God tells Abraham, we're going to destroy, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. I'm going to destroy them. These cities have deteriorated uh, morally um, and they have to be destroyed. So Abraham, so Abraham 
tries to convince God not to do it. He says, what if you found 50 righteous people in the city? Would you still destroy it? And God says, no, I, would, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't do that. I would save the city on, on behalf of those people. And Abraham says, well, what about, you know, five less than that? I mean, come on, 45, you know, 50, it's close enough. Now, I, I, God says, again, I, I won't destroy it. 40, 30, 20, 10. God says, I won't destroy it if you find me 10 guys. There weren't even 10 guys. That's how bad this place was. There weren't even 10 guys. And then Abraham kind of gave up. And why did Abraham give up? Because, you know, God destroyed the world and saved Noah. And they were eight, right? They were eight. It was Noah, his three sons, and their and the, all their wives. Uh, so if God wasn't, to, and, and they were, you know, considered righteous. If God wasn't to destroy the world for eight, Abraham, then Abraham wasn't going to be able to save him. He couldn't go lower. He couldn't say five and two. It's over. God, sure. the, right? God already showed that he's willing to destroy the world for, mm. you know, about 10. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he he's going to destroy the city. But first they're going to go and save Lot. Lot is in the city. He's at the gate of the city. Which this is Abraham's in, nephew. Abraham's nephew. <clears throat> right? Abraham, you know... Uh, in the merit of Abraham, Lot is going to be saved. Lot is not doing such a great job morally. He doesn't have much to his own credit, but um, Abraham's credit is going to apply to Lot and they're going to save Lot. So the angels go to save Lot. Um, you know, insane thing happens there. Basically, one of the laws of the city of, of Sodom, it's interesting, this this connects to our theme of love and kindness. One of the laws of this, this is very, it's an interesting parallel. I'm just kind of seeing this now. One of the laws in Sodom, in Sodom, you're not allowed to have guests in your house. That was a law. You're not allowed to have guests stay in your house. So these angels came to Lot's house. Lot's, Lot invites them in as guests. And where did Lot learn to do that? He lived in Abraham's house. He was Abraham's nephew. He's, it's, you know, that's how we grew up, inviting people in. But it's against the law in Sodom. They don't believe in loving kindness. They say you sleep on the street. If you can't pay, if you can't, you know, buy a hotel, you're on the street. We don't, we don't do that here. You know? Really bad place. Really bad place. But, you know, it, it's kind of like that, like, attitude of like, you know, pay for yourself. Make your own money. You know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. We're not here to help. Right, uh, it's like maximalist capitalism. Maximalist capitalism, but like, you know, uh, in like the cruelest of ways. Like, there's no sure. like, like I don't think capitalism negates the possibility for charity. This is like sure. the, it's capitalism and and anti charity. You know what I mean? Let's like. Sure. Anyway, um, so he brings in so, the angels. So he brings in the angels. Bottom line is the whole city comes over and says, basically, you better throw those guys out and give them to us. And we're going to have our way with them. And the implication is they're going to have their way with them sexually. Because again, this was a very depraved society. They basically were going to take these guys and do what they wanted to them. The whole town lines about, up. Kind of like what about no, the name of the city? That's where it comes from. Uh... Right? That's where the name comes from. So 
you know, you can imagine wow. this like pitchfork mob with like torches. Hey, send those guys out. You know, like that kind of, like that kind of like that. I can kind of see that like kind of small town. Like we don't take too kindly to your kind. You know. Uh, so anyway, Lot says, "Listen, no, please don't. Here, take my daughters. They're you know." which is crazy. He, he like throws out his own daughters. Like, just don't take these guys. Cause he, I think he kind of knew they were angels, but he was willing to sacrifice his own family. Anyway, bottom line is the angels are able to manage to close the door, lock the door. And the angels basically tell Lot, like, we got to go now. Okay. God's about to destroy this place. We got to go. Um, he's delaying, you know, he's, uh, have you ever seen, um, you ever seen the movie hook? That old movie with um, uh, Dustin Hoffman and uh, maybe. Robin Williams. And, and Robin Williams, I think so. Yeah. So remember when Smee, the assistant pirate to Hook, like the ship, the ship is like sinking, and he's like trying to collect like the last of the gold. The and, like, last little bit, yeah, yeah. Right. He can't leave. He just like, oh, here's a few more things. Right. That's what they. That's what Lot was doing. Lot was like, he wouldn't leave. He was just like, wait, what about this? You know, what about this? He was trying to get all these things. Finalized, the angels just grabbed him and like left. He like couldn't even take it anymore. Um, anyway, at this point, they're running away from the city of Sodom. It's being destroyed as they're fleeing. Um, Lot's wife doesn't make it. She looks back, turns to salt. Right, famous story. She turns to salt. Lot and his two daughters end up in a cave alone. And they all believe, at least the daughters believe, that the world was destroyed. Lot knows it's just Sodom and Gomorrah because that's what he was told, but the daughters don't know that. The daughters are looking back. They see, you know, mushroom cloud of, you know, nuclear weapon, and, like, the whole thing is destroyed. So they think, oh, gosh, like, this is Noah again. We're the only ones left. Uh, this is where things get really dicey. And we spoke about this a little bit about doing the wrong thing for the right reasons and what place that has in our moral framework. Um, the sisters basically decide that in order to repopulate the world, they need to seduce their father, they need to get him drunk and, uh, you know, have children through him. Uh, the older one convinces the younger one. The older one was a little less modest with it. The younger one was, she did it, but she wasn't like as immodest about it. Um, anyway, they did that and they both had children through him, right? And these children become the progenitors of major nations, major empires, uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, the Ammonites and the Moabites come through these interactions. I was going to say, again, just pointing out themes and sort of my original topic on Eve, like another touchstone moment that's anti-feminist, which is interesting. Sarah was doubtful. Lot's wife looked back, and now Lot's uh -huh. daughters. So are, that's, I think that's coincidence. I mean, I mean, I hear what you're saying. You're saying everything I'm saying sounds like all the women are doing all the bad stuff. No, 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 no. I'm, I don't know, right? We're, we're we're just going high level. I'm just saying it's it's an it, you talk about there's themes that run through the text, right. and I'm just saying that this is a this is certainly a theme. You know, if you write a book report. Um, you could write a book report about the anti-feminist themes in the Torah. There, there, uh, 
I'm, there's no apologies. The Torah is definitely not in line with modern feminism, 100%. I'm not sure if you can say, well, you know, a lot of women did bad things, so it's anti-feminist because a lot of guys did bad things and the Torah is not shy about that. Um, there, there may be certain, I haven't thought about this, there may be certain types of things that the women are doing that are thematic, right? What, what are the specific types of things that they're doing Maybe may relate to some, you know, essential quality of women that obviously would be considered anti-feminist. It could be. I haven't thought about that, but just the fact that you, I pointed out a couple of women who did bad things. Believe me, there are plenty and plenty of guys in the Torah that are doing bad things. There's no, there's no doubt about sure, it. Sure, but but the, so to your point, then the type of thing that they're doing wrong is not trusting in God's work continuously or I God's commandment. Well, at least Sarah. Right, right? Uh, I mean, lack of Lost faith. Wife. Lack of faith. Yeah. Well, I, I, so I, I don't know. I, I would say Eve's, I would say Eve's mistake was temptation. She, it, the Torah it, speaks that out. Wasn't it a lack of faith in God's? Like she didn't have full faith in God's commandment to not eat the to not eat the forbidden you fruit. Could say that. I mean, you could say every sin is a lack of faith. You know, there's, there's sure. A, Sure. So okay. maybe on some level, but I would say the more immediate, obvious failing, moral failing was she was tempted, right? She pursued she tempted. The, 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 the Torah says it specifically. She saw that the fruit was good to eat and, you know, pleasing to the eyes and good for contemplation, right? So the Torah kind of tells you like she was tempted, right? Sure. Okay. I would so say that would be her failing. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah had was this, lack of faith. This, this faith aspect. And these ladies, who said they did anything wrong? Sure. No, that's what we're talking about now. To, okay. So I'm not sure if they did anything. Right. Sure. Sure. They were trying um, to repopulate the earth by any means necessary. Right. Uh, and that might've been okay. Right. Um, there, there, there is a place for doing what might be otherwise immoral behavior for the right reasons. The right reason. Wrong um, thing for the right reason. Wrong thing for the right reasons. Right. Let's say, you know, this is like the famous uh, question. If you could go back in time and kill Hitler as a baby, would you do it? Sure. Would you right? yeah, yeah. say, well, you, it's, you're not supposed to kill innocent babies, but for the right reason, maybe one. you should. Right. So um, yeah. I'm not okay. saying that's the answer, by the way. I'm just saying sure. no, 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 that's no. the type of thing that might fall under that category. Um, there, there's a big problem with that, that with that teaching. And it's true. I don't, I don't doubt it. I mean, it, obviously the Torah is teaching it, so it is valid. It's very dangerous, right? Because I think it could lead human to error. a tremendous know. rationalization for your behavior and the human sure, error. You're like, I was doing it for the right reasons. Sure. Okay. Right. So they, and the, they, yeah. So I was going to say the Torah is very, and this is in the Talmud, in the, in the oral tradition, the Torah makes it clear that in order to do something like this, you need to have 100% like, pure intentions without a doubt pure intention. sure, sure you can't be like you got to be on a certain level to do this otherwise just don't do it sure so uh anyway that's a whole subject matter but uh yeah that's what happens um okay there's a few things after that i think we can skip a few of the topics the next major topic of this parsha um isaac is born okay Isaac is the son that was promised a year later, right? From when mm, angel 99 has the kid, right? Sarah has the child, right? The child grows up, becomes a bar mitzvah boy, young man. And 
him and Ishmael fight a little bit. Ishmael's basically trying to kill him. But like, you know, he's shooting arrows in his direction. You know, it's not good. Cain and Abel stuff. Cain and Abel stuff. Right. Well, not really though. Is it is it a parallel or is it not really? Is it a jealousy it's, thing? It's 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 definitely a jealousy thing. Abraham Isaac is the the one who's gonna carry on Abraham's legacy, right? Sure, it's Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael thought it was gonna be him. Right, Ishmael thought it was gonna be him. Right? He thought he was the guy. For 13 years he thought he was the guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, Sarah has a real child. Uh, who's the real deal? And Ishmael just comes from the maidservant. She's not the one. He's not the one. He realizes that. So there's a tremendous jealousy. Um to the point where Sarah recognizes this and says basically to Abraham, you got to send your son, this other guy away. You got to send Ishmael away. Send him away. Abraham's very distraught over this, but he ha- he does it. God comes to him and says, listen to your wife. She's right. right. That's very feminist right there, right? Listen to your wife. Your wife is right. Um, sure. So, uh, so he does. He sends Ishmael away with his mother. And basically Ishmael saved somehow and becomes the progenitor of a great nation, which is the Arab nation, right? That's and they say that themselves that they are they are descendants of Ishmael. Um, but Isaac's the one who's gonna carry forward the the, the 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 tradition of Abraham. So is there like beef between the Jews and the Arabs? Because Ishmael is, <laughs> is is the maidservant's son? Is this the origin of the conflict? Some would say yes. And by and some, the, I mean the everybody. Arabs, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the Arabs acknowledge that Ishmael is there. Yes. Is where they spring forth from. They do. We're cousins. Wow. We're cousins. Yeah. And, you know, there's a little bit of a cousin rivalry. Well, not cousins. Fuck. We're like step-siblings. Right. Step siblings. That's right. Or half half we're, siblings. We're, half brothers. We're more like half brothers. The Arabs are like the bastard child of Abraham. An illegitimate were, child. Not illegitimate, because she was give she was given to Abraham legitimately as a wife. But Sarah gave oh, the maidservant. There's, but it's like but it's okay, there's some weird like dynamic there, right? Being the maidservant's wife. Right, but I'll tell you this. Uh the the Later on, Jacob has 12 sons, right? These 12 sons become the progenitors of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, right? Like, I don't, I, I think six of those tribes, six of those tribes, I think, come from maidservants. I don't know if you know that. But okay, Leah so like and Rachel practice. gave them. Yeah, so that's, and they're on the same level for the most part as all the other tribes. So, it's not necessarily a a, a bad okay, thing. Okay, I see. But I think the worst. I think the thing that was that was like the the dagger right. was he wasn't the one to continue the legacy of Abraham. He was being replaced okay. at thirteen years old. He grew up thinking he's going to be the guy, and he was replaced by the he, by he the was. true son of Abraham. And Isaac is V two. Isaac is V two. Better, faster, stronger. Right. Chosen, right? So he has Isaac at ninety-nine. He has Isaac at ninety-nine. Ishmael gets sent away. He's gone. He's kind of out of the picture for a while. Um, 
little incident with one of the uh, Philistine kings, whatever, something happens there. Side kind of, I, I'm not saying it's not important, but like that happens. Isaac grows up. Isaac's 40, right? Or 37, I should say. And Abraham is given one of the most strange and uh, inconsistent, contradictory commands of God and a command that's antithetical to Abraham's whole essence. Uh, and what's considered his 10th and final challenge of his life. And the most difficult and the most significant challenge of Abraham's whole life. This is it. This is the pinnacle of Abraham's, you know, life. He is commanded to take Isaac to the top of a mountain and slaughter him. Slaughter him to God. Sacrifice him. Like a lamb. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, if you think about how, how crazy this command is. Number one, just as Abraham being the embodiment of loving kindness, I mean, he's going to slaughter a human being just in itself. Number two, his son, who he loves, who he's, you know, just how could you do such a thing? Number three, not only the, the son that he loves, the chosen one. He's not just the son that he loves. He loves both of his sons. Not just the son, the chosen son, the one who is set to be Abraham's legacy. Abraham oh was God. told there's going to be a great nation coming from you. Now go ahead and slaughter the one who's going to lead the great nation. What? Well, yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so God's playing mind game. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I, I, I think at the end of the day, that's going to be part of the point, is that one of the lessons of this of this event, which is called the binding of Isaac, right? The Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, the, the command to sacrifice Isaac. One of the lessons of this, because it's so absurd and so contradictory, it's so, because also Abraham was a prophet. So he saw prophetically, like, Isaac's the guy. Like, this is happening. How could I possibly slaughter? It doesn't make sense. It's, there's sure. a contradiction here. Isaac, the, the, one of the lessons here is that you kind of got to trust God when things don't make sense. That's one of the lessons and themes that you pull out of this is that you may not understand it, but it God knows what he's doing. Okay. So he right. takes Isaac to the top of the mountain. So he takes so he said so he gets up first thing in the morning, meaning without hesitation. That's what that means. Gets up first meaning he gets uh, up without hesitation. He saddles his own donkey, which is unusual for a rich man. That's like, that's like, imagine Bill Gates, like, you know, sure. filling up his own gas, you know, and like getting in his own, instead of having his driver, sure, sure, he's, sure. he's gets up in the morning, he's ready to do it without hesitation. You can imagine like tears are pouring down his eyes, but he's like doing it. You know what I mean? Sure, uh, without hesitation. Without hesitation. Uh, and he basically tells the guys that are with him, wait here, I'm taking Isaac to this mountain. We'll be back. Or he didn't say we'll be back. He says, you know, I'll be back. Yeah, I don't know what he said. He said, you know, stay here. Uh, <laughs> and okay, so then Isaac figures out what's happening. All right. And this is one of the most like touching, like beautiful. Like if there was if this was a movie, there would be that, that music playing 
that like like everyone would just start crying right now you know what i mean like this yeah. would be like a moving yeah. moment and by the way i, I don't want to get into this too deeply but the torah uses some unbelievable literary devices um and hidden patterns in the in, in the language that uh have you ever heard of a chiasm you know what a chiasm no, is that? a chiasm is a literary device where you have one particular uh idea or theme and then at the end of a story you have the same thing and then the second theme relates to the second to last theme and the third theme relates to the third to last theme and it all approaches a center and the center is you know it points towards a center in other words and that center has a an important teaching that teaches you the main point of a story when a story is set up in this kind of symmetrical mirror image way pointing towards the center that will tell you the main theme the main point what you're the the the, the, the climax of that particular sequence it, it's kind of unbelievable these chiasms are throughout the torah by the dozens wow. you can imagine how someone could even have the way of writing such i mean it's unbelievable it's, yeah it's it's pretty unbelievable this was not a haphazard book that was written you know yeah. uh this was very carefully thought out anyway this ask i'm just telling you there's a chiasm here you if you went through the text you would see it and the center of the chiasm is this event right here where abraham and isaac are walking or riding towards the mountain and isaac says to abraham dad he says dad he literally says dad Abby. He says, Dad, I have the wood. I have the, you know, I have all the stuff we need for this sacrifice. But Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb, Dad? He knows. He knows he's the lamb. So, Dad, where's the lamb? You know, and you can hear like his lips are like quivering and he like, he knows he's the lamb. And God and Abraham knows that he knows. Like everyone knows that they know. And you know, the music kicks in. And this is this is the height. This is the climax. And Abraham says, Son, my son. You know, it says my son. Loving. You know, he's not, it's this, Abraham's not cold about this. He's not like you, you would think if you needed to kill someone you know, you would just go into yeah. that mode of like, I'm just gonna do it. I don't care. Yeah, business, take care of business, pull the trigger, you know, and, and that's no, he was a hundred percent present with his son, my son, my loving son who I adore. God will provide the sacrifice for us. God will provide it, my son. And it says they were at the beginning of that set that exchange, they were walking together. They walked together, and then it says at the end of that exchange, they walk together. They walk together and then Isaac says, dad, where's the lamb? And he says, God's going to take care of it, son. And then they continued to walk together. Torah makes a point of saying they walk, meaning the closeness of their relationship never faded. It, it was never, never wavered. For a it never wavered. They were, wow. Isaac, Isaac was okay with it. You know, in fact, they even say in the, in the, in the, in some of the traditional, uh, the oral tradition, they say that Isaac even stuck out his neck. When he was bound on the on the on the altar, he stuck out his neck and said, "You know, to make so sure that." So now we're coming ahead. 
cutting ahead. I'm just making the point. Like Isaac had no reserve. You know, no he was hesitation. not. No hesitation. Stuck out his neck. God, this is what God said to do. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. But the point is, this is a beautiful moment. And this, this is an important moment that whenever you are called by God to do something, it's not mechanical. It's not, you're not a robot that's just following, you know, rules of God. You're a human being. You have real emotions. They're important. They're part of your experience. You bring your whole self with you to your experience of this world and to your relationship with God and your relationship with others. You don't leave any of that out. Uh, you know, Abraham was vulnerable. He was real. He was, you know, he was having a loving exchange with his son. He wasn't shying away from that. Uh, that's an important, I think it's an essential point of this story is that we do what God asks, no question. That's obviously, you know, the test was to do what God asks in the face of uncertainty, but to do what God asks to, to follow in God's ways with being real, like be, be who you are, be authentic. You don't, have to, you, don't have to, you don't have to be this like pretend pious person that like is too holy to feel pain. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's there's a that's a beautiful it's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. It's one of the most famous stories in the entire Torah, the binding of Isaac. At basically, to cut to the chase, at the end of the story, right before Abraham's about to do it, an angel comes and says, stop, don't harm him. You pass the test. It's over. Here's a lamb or a, a ram, not a lamb, a ram. And he sacrifices the ram instead, and they walk down happily together. And that's like the end of the story. End and that's of the, the end of the part shot. Curtain, curtain closed. So starting with Lot. Well, Abraham at the tent. Abraham at the oh, tent. That was the beginning. Yeah. Cutting <clears throat> over to Sodom being destroyed. Right. Lot having Lot's daughters seducing him into having kids. Right. Who go on to be leaders of great nations. Abraham finding angels or people in the desert that God sends to let him know he's going to have a kid in a year. Right. That was before, but yes. Oh, that was all in the beginning. That was all in the beginning. That was in the beginning. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. There was a a little episode with the Philistines Right, uh, that I, I kind of yeah. skipped over. Okay, cuts uh, a year in advance. He has a kid, Isaac, raises him up, sends his other kid away. Right, and then God tells him to go sacrifice your child. Right. Wow. And um, I mean, I, I want to. I want to understand. We've we've gone through the story now. That's um, the story. How do you? How do you see this parsha relating to the world right now? Like, and just in your observations, like, what are you seeing in the world around you on a macro level, on a micro level? It's a good question. What are you seeing right think, now? I have to think about it. I have to think about it. First of all, I have to get, like I said, I'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, get a, a grasp on the themes that run through the whole story. In other words, mm. how was like first Abraham had some guests, then Sodom's destroyed. Then there's an incident with a Philistine king. Then there's a sacrifice. What do all those things have to do with each other? Are they part of a, mm. they're not just random biographical events in Abraham's life. They're also part of a theme. 
I'm trying to figure out what that theme is. Last Parsha, the theme was Abraham's legacy. Who's going to be the guy? Right? Mm. He thought it was Lot. He thought at one point Abraham thought it's not going to be my servant. He had no one because Lot was cat gone. Lot went to Sodom. Sure. Yeah, maybe my servant. My he has a servant named Eliezer. He said maybe Eliezer can't be him. Who's going to do this? He asks God. God says, "Don't worry, I'm going to give you a son." That was like the theme of last week's parsha, which was mm. who was going to be. Right, so who? What is the, the theme of this week's parsha? I'm not sure. I have to think about it. What would be the overarching theme running through this story? Um, you know, obviously all of Abraham's tests from the beginning of his career to the end, uh, you know, they all are tests, obviously tests of faith, but more so tests of his loving kindness, right? Sure. They all relate like how, to his loving kindness. How, how deeply can you love and how, how absurd and cruel of circumstances can you sustain your loving kindness? Right. And can you do things? Can you can you either suspend your loving kindness or even act as an act of loving kindness? Do things that might appear cruel or or harsh or right? Can you or sacrifice wrong. wrong? Can you do those things either despite your loving kindness, or I would say even better, as an act of loving kindness? Mm. He's perfecting his loving kindness, right? Sometimes being mm. doing a kindness, sometimes doing good and doing kindness for others is not always like, you know, flowers nice. and rose petals. It's not always sure. nice. I mean, that might be an important lesson for the day. That might be something we can relate to that the, the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the kind thing to do may not be the warm and fuzzy and, you know, uh, feel good type of thing to do right mm -hmm. for example i'll give you a perfect example let's say you have this is a, this is a very relevant contemporary example let's say you have a friend or relative or whatever who is uh addicted to drugs serious drugs right major drug addict um so you know the 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 misguided act of compassion and loving kindness oh it's okay you're doing fine you know let me, let me, you know, I'll, I'll buy, you know, I'll, I'll, you need some more money. Here you go. Here's some more money. You know, just, you know, try to get yourself to get the, 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 the right approach. I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I know nothing about, uh, you know, dealing with people with, with addiction and, you know, the, all the proper way of dealing with it. I'm just spitballing, you know, an example as a metaphor, um, the right thing to do, the, 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 the kind thing to do might be the tough love approach where you're being cut off or, I'm intervening. I'm throwing you in a rehab. I'm taking you, get in my car right now. We're going to rehab. You know, it may not be very pleasant. It may not be very warm, but that might be the greatest act of love you could ever do is intervene in, in, in a way that might seem harsh or might seem, uh, you know, uh, cold. But that's, mm -hmm. that's love. That's real love. That's, that's you really care about the person. Right. Yeah. Um. So we have to contemplate the, the 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 parameters of our loving kindness and and you know how to apply it in situations that are not cut and dry, that are not you know someone's in need. Let me just bring them a warm meal or give them a blanket. Sometimes loving kindness requires uh, you know some uh, some tough action. Mm -hmm.
that's a good um it's a good condensation i think of the uh of the themes of this week do you see any areas of your life where you could bring this energy um the the tough love <laughs> I or definitely... well, no it doesn't have to be tough love just the um the idea that kindness isn't always kindness isn't always cut and dry or warm and fuzzy right. you know right um you know i have to think about it i don't know um i definitely could do a better job um you know with discipline in my own home with my daughter you know mm. she gets away with everything um which is good <laughs> you know it's better to you know it's better than than being too harsh but uh, mm -hmm. I probably could work on the balance on that a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. So, no, I mean, you know, it's something to think about. It's something to think about generally. Um, I have to think about how I would apply it to my own personal life. Um, you know, you can apply these things to yourself, too. You don't have to always go out and be like, oh, now I'm going to go give everyone tough love. You can give yourself tough love. You can, you, you know, if you've been working on something or you've been, uh, you know, you have goals and you've been lazy about them or you've been slacking or you know whatever you can say hey let's pick it up come on get on the bicycle get on the peloton right it's been sitting in your living it's been sitting in your office for three weeks now mm. been paying for this membership service get on the freaking mm. peloton you know do the work i i love you i love you i want you to be healthy get on the freaking peloton you know mm. that that's also a uh that's me speaking to myself. That's also a, a, a an application, right? That if you if you have goals, if you have, you know, the, the, the most loving thing you can do for yourself is get your get your get your get off your butt and and mm -hmm. and, and move forward. You don't have to be a jerk about it. Like, you know what I'm saying? You have to be like, you have to be like, you know, yelling at yourself. But you can you can give yourself a little bit of a, a tough motivation, a, a little bit of a, a little push. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Don't be so don't be so like so like delicate. You know all the time certainly yeah kindness isn't always gentle right and you you tell me what do you got where do you see this for you for the world you know whatever you know i'm an interesting point mm. with my with my relationship that i'm in right now where we're working it out we're talking through things we're figuring out how to support each other and I, I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I feel like um, this is exactly the moment for this story to be told for me, to be honest. It resonates very deeply in how loving I can be. And it might, and it might not be gentle. Right. And I, and I think that's... Um, I love I love how you said he's refining or he's perfecting, I think maybe is the word that you use. He's perfecting his kindness. And I feel like in my life I haven't always known how to manage difficult situations with kindness. Uh-huh. I get reactive, I get charged, I get angry. Right. You know, I, you know, you mentioned in the, it's very easy to make it cold, make it business. You know, I'm avoiding if you want to subscribe to your different um, types of pair bonding and um, relationship styles. And um, yeah, I really want to lean I, and, and I'm reading way of the superior man right now. 
And I feel like that deep grounding, yeah, David Data, and connected to that Jewish, by the place way. For you me. know that he's Jewish? I do. I remember when, we, when you suggested the book to me, maybe, wow, it ago. could have literally been 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think his real name is like Greenberg or something like that. Oh, he just wants to be like. I don't know. Funny guy. All David. right, David. If you're listening, David, we love you. <laughs> David Data um, changed my life. <laughs> he's changing no, my life. Lost. Yeah, he talks a lot about this. This is like true, true love, true kindness. Right. You know, and it's right. just like it's an ancient, an ancient teaching. A hundred percent. It's a true teaching. That's why it resonates in every culture. I mean, these are a lot of these themes you'll find in other religions or cultures because they're true, right? No one, mm-hmm. you know, people speak about these things because they're true. Um. So, you know, I would say that, uh, so everything you're saying hundred percent, I totally get it that, you know, like where you're coming from and it's something we all have to work on. Um, I think we should push this off for another week because this is an, a really important Absolutely. topic, but I want to say just briefly that this idea of going out of yourself, right? That's what we spoke about from, uh, being a giver, being a being someone who goes out, being a being a person who acts through love and kindness. This is like the essential purpose of life, right? Everything, and, and this is this is what should, you know, guide you. Uh, on the deep, you know, at the root of everything that you do, at the that's why Abraham's the first one. This is the root of everything. The root of everything that you do in this world should be going out of yourself, right? That should be the goal. Leaving yourself, moving beyond yourself, right? Uh, that is the that is the way you should guide yourself. So, you know, if you can reprogram yourself to think everything that you're going to do is for the sake of giving, for the sake of being selfless, even things that you do for yourself, right? You're going to get good sleep and you're going to, you're going to eat healthy and you're going to take care of yourself. And, and it's not for you. It's not for you. It's for others. You're going to, you're going to, you know, change the way you act in this relationship and you're going to, you know, improve for her sake, not for your sake. Don't worry about you, but try to do everything for selfless. I mean, this is, you know, a tall order. And this is like, this is like the pinnacle. I lost you. That's all right. All right. Your- I didn't talk for it. I, I, it was one second. Um, anyway, just to summarize, you know, to the extent, let me say it like this. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little better way of saying it. To the extent that we can orient ourselves uh, towards being a giver in all of our actions, all of our thoughts and every, all of our motivations, we will be a better, more whole, more complete, more developed, more mature being, and ultimately one that is going to have more meaning and joy in their lives, right? If you care about the quality of your life, which you do, you will strive to become a giver, in, 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 in a guy who, who goes out in every aspect of life. That is the life. That is the lesson of Abraham. 
I think it's an amazing place for us to put a pin in this conversation. Pinned. Pinned. Wow. I'm just going to make a note. Man, Justin, it's this is really special. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I hope we can do it every single week. Yeah, I mean, I, I like doing this. I, I don't know if this will ever any, – any of this will see the light of day. You know, I'm always – I've never, like, recorded anything before and put it out there because I'm just – I don't know. You know, the internet's forever and I've never like wanted to like, like commit my ideas and opinions and like have them be out there for the world. But, uh, you know, I think it could be helpful for people. So like, who cares as long as it, if it helps and it's positive on balance, then, you know, that'll be great. Um, and if no one sees it, it's just good for us, you know? It's good for us to do this. I think it's good for me for sure. And I think it's good for us uh, to think about these things and work on ourselves. And if any, at the very least, our lives will be more fulfilled by doing this. I couldn't agree more. It's why I said I feel like every single week when we're going to now meet together, I'm going to walk out and be a totally different man. Like, and, and you know, I'm coming up on my 30th birthday, which is a pretty crazy thing to think of. Um, and it feels, it couldn't feel more like a, a flag in the sand moment of like, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I, I'm here now and I'm proud of where I am. And I'm like, I'm ready also to like rise to the occasion of whatever is coming right. next. Thirties are the best. It's your best years. Well, I mean, I'm only 35, <laughs> so I don't have so much experience in my thirties, but this is, this is it. You know, thirties are great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm you can really forward. make an impact in your thirties. I feel it. And I'd like to, and I feel like this is an incredible foundation to, you know, we're just in Genesis, but I feel like this is an incredible foundation um, for me to learn the ways of the land. The Derek's the ways of the world. I love it, man. Well, how about this? What, what do we have to look forward to next week? Do you know what the ne next week's Parsha is? Um, next week Parsha is Toldos. It's going to be the life of Isaac, Abraham, you know, he's still involved, but it's not about him anymore. He's kind of fading into the annals of history. And Isaac is now front and center. And we're watching the life of Isaac. Mm. Isaac's a very mysterious character in the Torah. He doesn't say a lot. There's not a lot about him in the Torah. He's a very quiet figure. Uh, but he, he has a lot of depth. You know, uh, you'll see some of the themes. In fact, one of the major themes, one of the major, uh, uh, I guess, symbols, one of the major symbols in the story of Isaac is the well. If you look through the next part, you're going to see there's like a hundred wells. Like it, he built this well and this well got closed up and then there's another well mm -hmm. and he opened it, right? The well is a symbol of, of depth. depth and at the bottom of the depth is is running water is a wellspring of life right but you can't see it from the surface it's buried it's deep it's hidden that's that's kind of representative of isaac's life we'll, we'll talk about you know what his what his primary quality is what his embodiment his quality that he embodies is and uh, how that relates to all that 
I love it, man. I'm so excited. I love it. I love you. Love you. Are you doing a uh, vibey Shabbat or like, like once in a while? It's not like an every week thing. I'm I'm gonna. I want to do once a month a vibey Shabbat. Um, is is like my uh, intention. Okay. All right. Well, I hope you have a good Shabbat this Shabbat, and uh, you. you know we should. These things should uh, inspire us and help us in our lives. I hope so. Not ju- I hope not just us. I hope anyone, anyone and who listens. It's um, ever you're right. This will I, Sunday. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig in. I want to get a version one by end of day. I want to publish wow. it, capture the capture the just pu- get it up, and uh, we'll have a flag in the sand. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> this has been episode one of Going Off, baby. Going Off, episode one. On the books. All right, Liz. I'll talk to you next week. I'll talk to you next week. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Cheers, brother. Later.